Warning, this show may contain adult language that is not suitable for all audiences. This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Mixed martial arts enthusiasts, welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and we have a lot to get to in the world of mixed martial arts, as we always do. You know, we just had the event UFC Fight Night Cater versus Allen. We've got another one this weekend. UFC Fight Night Rodriguez versus Lemos. And we also have the boxing match between Jake Paul and Anderson Silva. So we're going to discuss all of that on this week's show. So thank you for tuning in and uh, happy belated Halloween to you and yours. Uh, if, you, uh, if you celebrate, I know in certain parts of the world they don't really do Halloween. So if you're listening outside of uh, one of the countries that Halloween is a mainstay, you know, um, I'm sorry to hear that because you get lots of candy and stuff. My kids were on cloud nine, just bringing home tons of candy. Thrilled about it. Now, I don't eat anything with refined sugar, so I just steal their little bags of chips. That, that's, that's what I get for Halloween, small bags of potato chips and small bags of smart food. And I live off of that vicariously through them. Because it's just, yeah, can I have another snack? Can I have another snack? Yeah, sure. I mean, we now have 200 mini chocolate bars in the bag that we need to get rid of somehow. So, knock yourself out. Anyhow, happy Halloween to everybody. Hope you uh, enjoy the holiday. Before we talk about uh, Jake Paul and Anderson Silva, let's talk a little bit about UFC Fight Night Cater versus Allen, shall we? Uh, it's a pretty solid event overall. Not the highest uh, most name value, but that seems to be part of the course when it comes to the UFC Apex. Uh, you know, see this weekend's card as uh, proof of that. But the main event, unfortunately, didn't live up to expectation. It's the second kind of straight week. UFC 280 is sort of the same deal. Cater versus Allen on paper is such a great fight. But, uh, yeah, Arnold Allen versus Calvin Cater. I think Allen was winning the first round. Calvin Cater went for, like, a flying maneuver. I don't know if it was just a close distance or... It was basically like a flying knee, but more of a flying knee like the kind of Charles Oliveira throws to kind of get in close to his opponent so he can land something big. And on the landing, his knee buckled, and uh, he has a knee injury. Tough break for Calvin Cater. I mean, this guy just keeps fighting the best of the best guys in the featherweight division in hopes of finally beating the fighter that will put him up at the top. I mean, he had that win over Giga Chikadze earlier this year in his bounce-back fight after that brutal loss to Max Holloway. Then a very closely contested split decision loss to Josh Emmett. And now Arnold Allen defeats him eight seconds into the second round via TKO knee injury. Took out, basically took out Cater's leg, and Cater's like, nah, I'm done. Tapped. No more damage needed at that point in time. And uh, Arnold Allen remains undefeated. 10-0 start to his UFC career. The second longest active win streak in the featherweight division. The longest being the champion, Alexander Volkanovsky, who has one more win than him. So, Arnold Allen just continues to be on a roll. The problem that I always had with Arnold Allen's resume is that, you know, he didn't have the best names on there. You look early in his career, all these guys are no longer in the UFC. You've got Alan Omer, Yautzen Meza. Makwan Amir Khani is still in the UFC, so he's an exception. I think he's coming off a win. Uh, let me double-check that before I state that as a, as a fact. Nope, never mind. Lost to Jonathan Pierce. He's actually 1-4 in his last five. So, I mean, there you go. 
Mads Brunel, uh, doing pretty big things over in Bellator, but no longer in the UFC. Jordan Rinaldi, no longer in the UFC. Gilbert Melendez, I believe, is retired. Nick Lentz, retired. Sadiq Youssef, still looking good. That's a, that's a good win. Ranked opponent. Dan Hooker came back to featherweight, had a cup of coffee. He's back at lightweight now. Knocked him out. Solid win, but I mean, I don't know if Dan Hooker at featherweight was meant to be at this stage in his career. And then Calvin Cater, big win for him. So the question is, what's it going to take for Arnold Allen to get a title shot? Because right now, we know that, hypothetically speaking, you know, contracts don't need to be signed and all that. Alexander Volkanovsky is targeting a shot at the lightweight championship, and that seems to be what everybody believes is going to be next. Should that happen, the featherweight division is kind of wide open for the first time in a while. Because if you look at this division, there's been three champions since it's come to the UFC. You've got jo- oh, sorry, four champions. You've got Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor, Max Holloway, and now Alexander Volkanovsky. Four champions. And all of these other guys have just been jockeying for position, and it's been very difficult for them to get there. You've got Yair Rodriguez, who had kind of a, a weird injury win over Brian Ortega, whose uh, shoulder separated, I believe, if I recall correctly. You've got Josh Emmett, who had the win over Cater. Split decision, controversial split decision. And you've got Arnold Allen, who's on this big win streak. But again, the the level of competition isn't phenomenal. But at the same time, a 10-fight win, win streak is a 10-fight win streak, especially when it's capped by wins over Sadiq Hughes of Dan Hooker and Calvin Cater. Like, those are legit wins. So how do people rank these fighters in terms of where they stand in terms of the title picture? Like, if you were going to make an interim title fight, are you doing Arnold Allen versus Yair? Are you doing Arnold Allen versus Emmett? Are you doing Emmett versus Yair? All good possibilities. But I think at this stage, Arnold Allen should be in that fight, regardless of who it's against. If it's against Yair, if it's against Josh Emmett. Because the thing is, Josh Emmett and Yair are both like, no, it's title shot or bust for me. So if I'm the UFC and I'm not going to create an interim title, as Dana White said, they're leaning towards not creating an interim title. Basically, I think you say, hey, Arnold, we want you to fight Yair Rodriguez or Josh Emmett. Five-round fight, main event on a fight night, or something along those lines. Or maybe a co-main event on a pay-per-view. You in? If Arnold Allen says, yes, mate, I'm in. Then you go to the negotiating table with Emmett and Rodriguez and say, hey, this is what we got. The winner of this fight is getting a title shot. It's not an interim title. Which one of you is going to step up? And that's how you make your next fight. Because I haven't heard Arnold Allen say, it's title shot or, or bust for me. Still only 28 years old, about to turn 29 in two months' time. So... You look at what he brings to the table. That's right, it's more like three months. He's in January of next year. But you look at what he brings to the table. He's well-rounded. He's on this 10-fight win streak. He's young, and he's game. So I think that the UFC are basically going to decide, at that point in time, who is going to be first in line for the championship. Like I don't think that there's anybody right now where you could definitively say, yeah, that's the guy. You still have Holloway in the mix, too. Who has a win over Yeager and a win over Ortega and a win over Calvin Cater? He's still there at the number one spot. 
So maybe you do Arnold Allen and Max Holloway if neither of those guys want it and say, hey, Max, you're back in, you're back in the mix, buddy. I don't think that's how it plays out, but who knows? And then you got Bryce Mitchell, who I believe is still undefeated in the featherweight division, officially. I know he did lose on the Ultimate Fighter to Brad Katona, who recently re, uh, retained his brave bantamweight championship. Congrats to uh, Brad Katona. But there's not really a whole lot to play with there. I mean, Ortega's injured. Holloway's coming off the loss to Volkanovski, and we haven't really heard much out of him lately. I'm sure he's still looming over the division that if they decide to give him a shot, maybe that's the way it goes. But right now, the featherweight division, I think, is going to be decided ultimately by those three guys. You got Arnold Allen, you got Brian, uh, sorry, you got uh, Yair Rodriguez and Josh Emmett, and that's the way it's going to go. So the UFC got a lot of leverage out of Arnold Allen winning that fight, that's for sure. Because now you can't have Yair saying, you know, I'm going to face Emmett for the interim belt, or I'm going to wait until Volkanovski's back. I don't think they're going to afford the opportunity to those guys. Because, listen, there's not a... And I'm not trying to be, you know, siding with the promotion here, but at the same time, like, there's just nobody standing out that says, you know, you need to give this guy a title shot. So if you're the matchmakers and you're looking at it, you, you show me. Show me that you're the guy. So a big win for Arnold Allen against Calvin Cater in the main event. The co-main event, Max Griffin defeats Tim Means. Split decision, 29-28, 28-29, 30-27. Now, a lot of controversy around that Tim Means scorecard. But I'm going to put my judging hat on and explain what probably happened there. So if you look at that second round, it's all Tim Means. Like, Tim Means is winning that round, hands down, until the final 30 seconds. So... But he's not winning by a large margin. He's just, but he's winning. Like, it's pretty clear that Tim Means is winning that round. And then he gets dropped by Max Griffin. And Max Griffin lands some good ground and pound. So based on the criteria, that's a Max Griffin round. I mean, he landed the more damaging strike. He had the, uh, the most effectiveness, which is basically fight-ending opportunities. However, you got to remember, when you're watching this on TV, you're watching the best possible angle of the fight at all times, for the most part. If you're a judge, it depends on where you're seated, and it depends what you see. Because to that judge, who does not have the luxury of instant replay or stats, they might see it differently than we do on TV. They might see, well, Tim Means pulled guard, or Griffin landed a takedown. Or, you know, they might not have been able to decipher that information. So if you don't, if you don't know that that's a knockdown for Max Griffin... Giving that round to Means makes a lot of sense. Again, if you don't know that that is a knockdown, if you're from your vantage point, it's obscured in a, a way where you can't definitively say that was a knockdown. I get giving that round to Tim Means. And I get giving the third round to Tim Means. You know, Max Griffin had control for a lot of that round, but he was mostly just holding Means there. And then when Means got control, he was landing good ground and pound. I gave that third round to Tim Means. I gave 1-2 Griffin, third round Means. So it being a split decision, I think that there is some information that we're missing there that we're never going to get. But ultimately, I think that's the reason why you have three judges watching for three different vantage points. So that if one judge misses what happened for whatever reason, you have checks and balances where the other two judges saw what happened and they award the round to the right person. That doesn't necessarily mean the other person the bad judge or something along those lines. They might just not have seen it. Now, if they did see that it was a knockdown and they gave the round to Means we might have a bit of a problem because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in my opinion 
unless they were right there and saw that means was barely impacted by that knockdown or that there was a slip or something maybe they saw something else that we didn't really get to see maybe they were right there i don't know which judge it was I, i'd have to go back and watch the tape and see where the judge that scored a 28 29 or 29 28 means rather was sitting waldo cortez acosta defeats jared vandera decision Win unanimous decision win 20 uh, 30 27 29 28 and 29 28 for Cortez Acosta. I saw that second round for Vandera, but uh, you know, I'm not going to not a hill I'm willing to die on. The problem is, and my colleague Dan Tom mentions this all the time that whole round is Vandera chipping away at the leg, chopping the leg, chopping the leg. Does that get no credit? Because Cortez Acosta was limping back to his corner at the end of the first round, and then the second round, you see Vandera attacking. A part of Cortez Acosta's body that is compromised. And the judges are supposed to watch what happens between the rounds. And make assessments on where those fighters are at from a health perspective. What is damaged? So I'm confused as to why you would give Cortez Acosta that second round. But uh, either way, I think that the the correct fighter won. I think that Acosta won the first and third round. Pretty clearly. The second round, I think Bandera won. But again, that's just me. If you want to see a vicious submission, Treshawn Gore against Josh Fremden. He grabbed that neck of Fremden. He was not letting go. Ended up basically being like an inverted guillotine choke for the most part. Like, Fremden was just trying to get out of it. Gore ends up holding on tight. He wasn't, he wasn't releasing that hold and Fremden went out. Fremden has a long neck, right? Like, if you have a long neck, you're kind of at a disadvantage when you're in a hold like that because your opponent can just hang on tight. Whereas Gore doesn't have much of a neck. So he actually has a bit of an advantage in that sense. It's hard to keep him in a, in a guillotine. So a, a solid win for Trajan Gore. Finally on the scoreboard in terms of wins in the UFC. He'd been a favorite in his other fights. Loses those. And then an underdog in this fight. And he wins. So I think maybe he just needed that wake-up call. And get his back against the wall. Knew that this was a must-win for him. Because if he loses, he's released. So kudos to Trajan Gore. Very intense post-fight speech as well. Khalil Roundtree Jr. defeats Dustin Jacoby. Split decision win 29-28, 28-29, and 29-28. Now, just about everybody seemed to have Jacoby winning this fight. But, that doesn't necessarily mean that they know the scoring criteria and what should be valued by the scoring criteria and what is valued by the scoring criteria. But you have three pretty good judges sitting cage side that know what they're talking about. And... I had to score the same. I had a 29-28 Roundtree. I gave Roundtree the second round and the third round. And I, could, I would also say that the first round was a close round. You know, after the second round, I put on Twitter saying, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this one scored. Because you have Roundtree landing the bigger, more damaging strikes. But Jacoby is just piling up accumulation. Like landing tons of, of solid strikes, good technique, getting in and out, landing more than his opponent is, and still racking up a little bit of damage as, as he goes on. That's a difficult round to score. And that's why I said I'm interested to see. Not because I thought it was a slam dunk for Roundtree, but it was like, yeah, a lot of people think Jacoby won this round, but eh, you can make a case that Roundtree did. And I would make that case. Because I think that if you read the criteria, letter for letter, the fighter that is the more effective striker that lands the more damaging strikes is the one that they're going to give the round to more often than not. Unless there's some sort of reason otherwise. Like, unless there's so much volume that the accumulation of that volume is more damaging than the big damaging strikes, that's when things can get a little bit iffy. But I thought that that was round two juniors fight. 
and I try to watch through the eyes of the criteria, but, you know, I'm also watching as somebody who wants to report on the sport and wants to make sure I'm not missing anything. Whereas you've got the judges sitting on three different sides of the cage, all watching, all getting to hear the impact firsthand. They see and hear things that we don't see. That being said, we also saw that the crowd were pretty disappointed that Jacoby didn't get the decision there. But again, they're watching through the eyes of, fan, of a fan. You know, I don't know if they're, they serve drinks at the Apex. These are young students. I, if they're watching well under the influence of alcohol or something, I don't know how, how old they are. Whatever. However they want to watch it, be that as it may. That's their, it's their night for entertainment. They can do what they want. They're not there to judge the fights. The judges are there to judge the fights. And when you look at what Jacoby's doing in the second round, he's landing some great shots. He's got good technique. He's got good footwork. You know, the guy was a glory kickboxer. The guy knows what he's doing on the feet. But he's getting tagged with big shots from Roundtree. Good counters. Heavy shots. That's what judges are looking for. They're looking for more dam- the bigger, more damaging strikes. And I would contest that Roundtree landed those. You know, being a judge is not a good job. It's a terrible job. And everybody, because everybody rips them. They have to travel every week for the most part, depending on how many assignments they get. But they have to travel a lot. Then they have to go after the event. They have to have a meeting about how things went. They don't get paid much. I think it's anywhere from like 750 to 1500 bucks a night. It might seem like a lot, but it's not. Because they have, most of them, for the most part, work full-time jobs outside of their judging. So then... They fly back on Sunday. Then Monday, they're back in their office. They're back doing whatever they do for a living. So, and then you have the the commentators saying, have these guys ever taken a calf kick? Have these guys ever been in this position? Most of them are trained martial artists. Most of the referees and judges have trained in, mar- in some form of martial arts or another. It's very dismissive. Yeah, maybe they haven't fought at a UFC level. Maybe they haven't check the calf kick from somebody as big as Khalil Roundtree Jr. But these guys are trained to follow a specific criteria in terms of what they're watching. And they're watching solely through the eyes of that criteria. So, you know, I feel bad when a lot of these judges get ripped on by people who don't know what they're talking about. They haven't read the criteria. They don't know how fights are scored. Because they're looking at the stats on the screen or they're looking at how the crowd's responding. All these things that the judges don't take into consideration at all. They're completely irrelevant to what they're looking at and what they're watching. They don't get to see replays. They don't get to see stats. So if you see somebody land a clean strike that puts someone down on the broadcast or on the replay, there's a chance the judge didn't see it from that angle. So let the judges judge. And if you say that Jacoby won the second round, that's fair. Like, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm sure that the judges wouldn't say that you're wrong. If you got to sit down with one of the judges and say, hey, I'm going to explain to you why, why I thought Jacoby won that round. The judge would probably say, yeah, okay, that's a fair argument. There's no absolutes in judging. It's all interpretation. It's just like diving. Like, you know, it's figure skating. The judges watch based on a certain criteria and they give their judgment at the end when they're required to.
Fight will hit the prelims. Roman Delize defeats Phil Haas via KO. Nice finish for Delize. I mean, this guy... The problem with this fight, though, is Haas is badly compromised. Like, Delize had him in a leg in a knee bar. And it looked like Haas' knee popped. He got up and was like, ah! At that point, the referee has a judgment call to make. And I think it was Dan Bergliata who was the ref. You have to decide if that scream is, I'm in pain, or I'm screaming to hype myself up, or anything. And that ref, at that second, needs to make a judgment call as to whether or not that's a verbal submission, whether they want to call it a TKO injury stoppage. Like, there's a whole lot of different things that they can do at that time, and one of those things is let the fight go on. Let the fighters show what they can do. See if they're still in this thing. Give them a little bit of time to recover. And Haas was with it for a bit. And then his knee just kept giving out, getting out on him. And uh, Roman Delizia lands a KO punch. And out he goes. Damage that he probably didn't need to take. So if you're the referee, you probably... I bet you Dan Mergliotta after that fight. If that was Dan Mergliotta, I keep saying it's him. But I, don't, I can't remember for sure. But I'm pretty sure it was him. I'm sure at the end he's going, Damn, I probably should have stopped that fight. That's what makes it a difficult job to be a referee. In that situation. It's going to sound like I'm just here defending all the judges and referees. But it's true. Like They have to. They have a determination to make in split seconds. And if you make it too late, then people are going to rip you. If you say, oh, fight's over. And, the, and Phil Haas looks at him and is like, why are you calling this fight? Then he gets ripped. And if he doesn't make the call, Phil Haas gets knocked out cold, gets ripped. Right? So, like, it's, it's a can't-win situation sometimes. And I think if you could ask him if, whether he would do that again, hand to God, he probably says, I stopped that fight when, when Haas yells out. I, I, I saved him from himself. Would look bad. I probably wouldn't be a popular decision, but it would have stopped Phil Haas from getting knocked out. Unnecessarily. Because that fight's pretty much over. Like, I don't think Haas, Haas can't plant. He's a, a fighter that relies on power and wrestling. So those are just tough decisions to make in the moment. Marcos Hogerio de Lima, another first-round finish over uh, this time over Andre Arlovsky. Submission win just under two minutes into the first round. Rogerio de Lima is a good fighter, man, at heavyweight. You know, a lot of the tendencies that we saw him at, at light heavyweight have gone away, where he just gets exhausted and then runs out of gas, runs out of steam. And he was always dangerous at light heavyweight, but at heavyweight, when he's walking around like 265 pounds, this is a dangerous guy. He swings big. He's got good submission skills. So kudos to him. Solid win over Andre Arlovsky. The Iron Turtle, Jun Yong Park. Rear naked choke victory over Joseph Holmes. Basically beat Holmes at his own game. Like at Holmes' best path to victory. Uh, and that's why I like Park going into this fight. I just thought that Park, wherever the fight went, was going to have advantages. On the feet, I thought he was going to be the better striker. Although Joseph Holmes looked like some, you know, he had some really improved striking. But I just, Jun Young Park is so good with his control on the ground. He makes it so difficult for you to escape his grasp. And no matter whether he's uh, got your back, whether he's on top, he just has very, very strong control. And that's a problem for just about anybody. So Jung Young Park gets the win. I think he has the record for the most control time in like a single middleweight fight. At least by percentages. I don't remember who that was against. Against John Phillips. Like he had tons of con he had control for a long time in that fight. 
Steve Garcia defeats Chase Hooper. This was an ugly fight. Minute and 32 seconds into the first round. He just tagged Chase Hooper early. And Hooper just had no answer. Like he... After Garcia landed that first shot, Hooper was just on wobbly legs the whole time. Was trying to fight his way out of it. And I think Steve Garcia was, was underestimated going into this fight because of his prior fight. You know, you look at Steve Garcia's fight earlier this year against Mahashate. Lost in a minute and 15 seconds. But this time around, landed heavy shots on Chase Hooper. And a great bounce-back performance for him as a big underdog in that fight. Cody Durden defeats Carlos Mota. And we came to learn after the fight that Mota had a, a crazy weight cut. Had to fly from, I think, from Brazil to get to Vegas on a short notice. Simon had to cut 20 pounds to get down to flyweight. So we're talking from like 45 to 125 in like six days. Looks like it took a toll on his body. And also, Cody Durden did what Cody Durden does. Try saying that 10 times fast. Took him down, controlled him, made his life difficult. That's what Cody Durden does when he's at his best and is able to get wins in that fashion. And was just able to do that for, for three rounds. And finally, the opener of the card, a guy I'm very high on, Christian Rodriguez, defeats uh, Josh Weems, who uh, missed weight. Anaconda choke first round. You know, Rodriguez, in my opinion, actually didn't look as good as I thought he was going to in that fight. Like He looked like he was a little bit nervous at times in that first round. But, I mean, 23 years old, he's just going to keep getting better and better. And um, a really solid win for him over a short-notice opponent who missed weight, no less. So, I look forward to seeing what's next for Christian Rodriguez. It's good to see that he's fighting at his natural weight class at 35. He lost to a JSP at 145 pounds. So, uh... Very eager to see what's next for Christian Rodriguez. I think he's got a, a bright future. I think he'll be a ranked bantamweight at some time in the, in the coming years. Performance bonuses for Treshawn Gore, Roman Delize, Steve Garcia, and Christian Rodriguez. Each walking away with an additional 50K. Congrats to them. And that wraps up UFC Fight Night, Cater versus Allen. And now we can move on to Jake Paul versus Anderson Silva. A boxing match that I think really said something about how good Jake Paul is at this stage. You know, I, you know me, I've been very vocal against Jake Paul and a lot of the, the ways that he does things, the way that he promotes fights, a lot of the different kind of suspect things that he's been doing over the years, rug pulls and whatnot in uh, the NFT space. I still think something was fishy about how that Hazim Rahman Jr. boxing match was just canceled because of some weird weight clause. But I will give Jake Paul credit. I didn't think he was going to beat Anderson Silva. Even at 47 years old, we've seen how good Anderson Silva has looked in the boxing realm. And I thought Jake Paul won, like, was it what, an eight-round fight? I thought he won at least five of those rounds, maybe six was just outboxing Anderson Silva. And I got some people responding to me being like, you're crazy, Anderson won. And I was like, okay, maybe I am. I don't, I don't know the boxing scoring criteria. So when I say it looked like he won six rounds, that's what it looked like to me. I'm as ignorant as anybody when it comes to boxing scoring. I haven't taken a course on it. I haven't read the boxing criteria. It's just what my eyes told me. So I will give full disclosure that I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to outboxing fights or scoring. Wish a lot of other people would have the willingness to admit that in the MMA space. 
It's a two-page document. You can read it. I should do the same with the boxing scoring criteria, to be honest. I just don't watch that much boxing. I'll watch it if there's a mixed martial artist involved. And that's what Jake Paul needs. Because as we heard from the crowd, and as I've said many times, Jake Paul needs MMA as much as MMA needs Jake Paul. Or more than MMA needs Jake Paul. That's the way I always say it. Let's correct myself. Jake Paul needs MMA more than MMA needs Jake Paul. And you can hear from the crowd when they show Sugar Sean O'Malley. Big pop. When you show the Diaz brothers, big pop. Everybody's on Anders and Silva's side. This was an MMA crowd. Luke Thomas was there. He said the same thing. He said it was visibly an MMA crowd. So what does that tell me? And that's why I bring back that Hasim Rockman Jr. fight getting canceled. And how they were going to pay all the like undercard fighters that were going to make 3K. Basically, lost their deposit. Like, you don't want to run an event at MSG that's not going to sell. Do you know how much union costs are there? Like, if, if somebody wants to plug a, a, lamp, a light into a, an outlet, that's 200 bucks. Something along those lines. It's a union shop. It's expensive to run events at MSG are expensive. Like, you need to know you're going to make money. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, you're going to bottom out. You're going to lose a ton of money. I think they knew that that Rockman Jr. fight was not going to sell. Because every fight that Jake Paul has had has had crossover appeal with the MMA crowd. In fact, I'd say he's more synonymous with MMA than he is boxing at this point in time. Like More people in MMA are interested in him than boxing people. I don't think he's going to fight Tommy Fury. Why? I don't think he's going to fight Hasim Rockman Jr. Keep fighting mixed martial artists. Fight like GS, boxing against GSP or like Nate Diaz. That's the attraction. He can keep doing that. Like he can, he can keep going to that well over and over again. Because MMA fighters, MMA fans want to see these MMA fighters beat Jake Paul. It's almost like a feats of strength. It's like, can, can you win an arm wrestling match against this dude? You get everyone's watching. Who's going to be the guy to, to win the arm wrestling match? Who's going to step right up? Let's see who's going to be. Someone's got to be able to beat this guy in an arm wrestling match. How strong could he possibly be? But the thing is, this guy's paying the best arm wrestlers in the world to come and train with him. They're coming to his secure location in Puerto Rico. He's flying them in. Private jets. I'm going to bring in the best arm wrestlers. I'm going to train with them all the time. They don't know how good I really am. Sometimes the best base for combat sports is having lots of money. Because you can afford the best training. You know, Islam Makhachev said that he spent around a million dollars on his camp, or somebody in his camp said that his camp was probably about a million dollars to win that championship. If you got money, you can get the best training in the world. Jake Paul's got lots of money. Guy knows what he's doing. He's a sharp, sharp guy in terms of business. Now, whether or not those business practices are always above board, I mean, you can say the same for any business for, for the most part. You just never know. So Jake Paul has figured out his circuit. His circuit is beating former mixed martial artists. I would be shocked if he goes back to the boxing uh, realm and tries to box against people that have boxing experience. It makes no sense. Like, why, why bother? You see the people that enjoy MMA and like have a reverence for all these legends are watching. Like they, They're interested. 
especially on a night where you have a, a event like Cater versus Allen that like falls flat. It's like okay, well, I want to watch something, something else, maybe something that's gonna like keep me invested tonight. Maybe people are betting on these events and want like something, want more action or something. Who knows? But that was a good boxing match. It was fun. It's entertaining. That's the thing. And in fact, that Woodley fight, he was so lucky to get that late knockout because it was such a boring fight up at that point. Then he lands that highlight real KO, and that's what everybody remembers. They don't remember how boring that fight was. So now, is he going to box Nate Diaz? Like, are people interested in that? Like, Diaz was a 155-pounder in the UFC. Jake Paul's like a light heavyweight, like a middleweight, I guess. I mean, he weighed in at 186 against Silva. Probably had to cut weight to do it. Enters the ring probably around close to 200 pounds. Maybe even higher. If it was California, we'd know. So, we're going to take Nate Diaz and what, are you going to bulk up? Like, personally, I mean, Jake Paul, I think, opened as a, as a sizable favorite. And I think that, that is, that's the way it should be. Not that they take anything away from Nate, but he'd be fighting up two weight classes. Give me a break. But hey, kudos to Jake Paul. You know, people paid attention. They cared. Tickets ended up selling towards as it got closer to the event. I'll give the guy his due when he earns it. I mean, that's a that's a great win for him. Again, even people are going to say, oh, Anderson's over the hill, 47. He's looked good as a boxer so far. And you heard what Dana White says. Anderson Silva's available. Why don't you box Anderson Silva? It's almost like he called him out, challenged him. Said, do you think you're that good? Box against one of the best strikers we've seen in MMA. And he did it. And now he has this deal with Anderson Silva that Anderson Silva would have to run some sort of fighters union? Like, okay. Is he going to, like, is Anderson Silva going to, like, issue press releases? Like, how, how's that going to work? I don't know. It, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll just put it that way. I'll believe it when I see it. And, hey, I hope that he does form a successful fighters union. It'd be great. Everybody's been hungry for one. At least those from the outside looking in. Because the fighters could unionize. You can form a union behind closed doors. What would the ramifications be? That's what I think they're worried about. Who knows? But Jake Paul gets the win. Unanimous decision. Got a knockdown in the final round. Looked nervous walking to the ring, too. So, you know what? Good for him. Like, I'll, I'll give him his due. That's a good win. We've got another UFC card this weekend. UFC Fight Night. Rodriguez versus Lemos. Marina Rodriguez. 16-1-2. Amanda Lemos. 12-2-1. Big stakes in the strawweight division. He's personally, I think Marina Rodriguez has done what it takes to earn a title fight already. Like, you look at her win streak right now. Her her last loss, her only UFC loss, I should say. So let's go from the let's go from the top. These are her last wins. So and and the reason why this is interesting is because this goes this is from basically five years ago, from 2017. She beats Natalia Silva. If you don't remember who Natalia Silva is, she came in against uh, one of our our countrymen, countrywoman actually, Jasmine Jasudevicius, and beat her in unanimous decision. Like looked fantastic. Marina Rodriguez beat her. 
Contender Series beats Maria Oliveira, who's in the UFC now. Is one and one so far in her fights in the UFC. Just beat her, knocked, finished her in the first round. Contender Series. Draw against Randa Marcos. Randa, at that point, had been fighting all the best of the best of the women's strawweight division. And that was her second fight in the UFC. Unanimous decision win over Jessica Aguilar, who was a champion over the World Series of Fighting. This unanimous decision win over Tisha Torres. Now, that's important. Like, we're talking about this is her fourth UFC fight. Or, sorry, third UFC fight. And she manages to get a unanimous decision win over Tisha Torres. That's a big win. Tisha Torres is no joke. She's been one of the top women's strawweights for, since the division began. Cynthia Calvillo. Draw, another draw. Majority draw. And then her, her lone loss thus far in the UFC is a split decision loss to the current champion, Carla Esparza. It's her only loss. From there, the win streak is Amanda Hibas, who she finished, was the first one to finish Amanda Hibas. Michelle Watterson, unanimous decision. Mackenzie Dern, unanimous decision. And Yan Xiaonan, who just beat Mackenzie Dern. Split decision. That was a close fight. That's a, that's a heck of a resume. Like, that's worthy of a title shot. So if she is able to get a win over Amanda Lemos, I think she positions herself to be next in line for a shot of the title. Depends on what Rose Namajunas wants to do. We'll see. But I think that Marina Rodriguez has definitely earned a shot at the title if she gets a win this weekend. And Amanda Lemos is no joke. I mean, Amanda Lemos has the best power, I believe, in the history of the women's strawweight division. Most knockdowns, if I'm not mistaken. Most knockdowns per 15 minutes. A bunch of different records that are based on her power. She's coming off of a guillotine choke win over Michelle Watterson back in July. And lost her first UFC loss. Or sorry, second UFC loss rather. Came to Jessica Andrade earlier this year. Prior to that was on a five-fight win streak. So she's looking to start a new win streak at the expense of Marina Rodriguez this weekend. Current odds on this one, Rodriguez minus 220, Lemos plus 168. It's probably about where it should be, honestly. If I could recommend something, it would be the over. Over four and a half rounds. If you can uh, get a good price on it. I think this fight goes the distance. But then again, I thought that Cater versus Allen would go the distance, and here we are. But that was an injury, so who knows. In the co-main event of the evening, we've got Neil Magny taking on Daniel Rodriguez. So you got Rodriguez in the main event and Rodriguez in the co-main event. I really like this fight. This, to me, is the uh, the best fight on the card. No disrespect to the main event, but nice to see D-Rod back in action. Quick turnaround after his uh, win over Li Lang. Now taking on Neil Magny. Neil Magny a small favorite. I think that Rodriguez opened as a much as a big favorite in that, like a bigger favorite. What was the oh no the opener? Magny was the opener was the uh, favorite as the uh, opener. Pretty much the same as as open. Surprised about that. I might look at the Rodriguez by KO prop at plus three fifty. I think if he can land to the body of Magny, that's been a problem that Magny's had in the past. He could cause some problems. But then again, Magny's always been really durable, really tough. Good on the ground with his submissions. Good KO power in his own right. Despite having uh, being uh, among the most decisions in UFC history, I believe. Most decision wins. 
I, I like D-Rod, though. I think as, as an underdog, I would, I would side with Daniel Rodriguez in that fight. Tagir Ulenbekov is a minus 215 favorite. Nate Manus plus 162. They keep matching Nate Manus up with like all of these, all of Habib's dudes. Last fight was against Umar Nurmagomedov. At least he gets the, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say the less talented, but I mean, <laughs> probably the less talented of the, the two Habib teammates because Umar Nurmagomedov, I think, is, has a trip to title town in his future. Whereas Tagir is still getting his feet wet. You know, Tagir Ulenbekov is not a very criteria-friendly fighter, and that's what my fear would be laying minus 215 with him. I think he wins this fight, but I'd be a little bit shy to pull the trigger on that one. Chase Sherman back in action, minus 128. Josh Parisian, plus 100. I, I like the Josh Parisian side here. If there's a good number on Parisian by sub, I might take a look at that. If you want to throw a, a dart... I can see that as a viable outcome. But I like Josh Parisian here as the underdog. How many times has Chase Sherman been a favorite in his UFC career? He's an underdog against Vandera. Big underdog against Chase Sherman. Or sorry, against uh, Alexander Romanov. We're talking about Chase Sherman here. Underdog against Jake Collier. He was favorite against Parker Porter. I believe he lost that fight. He was the favorite against Ike Villanueva. I'm pretty sure he won that fight, if I'm not mistaken. Underdog against Sakai. Underdog against Justin Willis. So he's been an underdog quite a bit in his UFC career. But uh, I, I I like Parisian here as an underdog. Grant Dawson, minus 245, short notice against Mark O. Madsen. Well, how's Grant Dawson going to beat Mark O. Madsen? Like, is he going to beat him on the feet? Because I don't know if he's going to be able to take down a guy with the wrestling credentials of Mark O. Madsen. So, this is a dogger pass to me. I think if this fight stays on the feet, it's, you know, anybody can win this fight. Grant Dawson's made a career off of beating inferior grapplers, getting on top of them and making their lives miserable. I don't know if he's going to be able to do that to Marco Madsen. But uh, I would probably pass altogether on that one. Shailen Nurdenbeke. Sorry, let me try that again. Shailen Nurdenbeke. I think that's how it's pronounced. I think it's pronounced differently, actually. I'm going to have to go and look up how to, how to pronounce Shailen's name. Minus 215, Derek Minner, plus 164. Uh, I'm interested to see what the submission line is for Minner. That's usually how he wins his fights. It's kind of submission or bust for him. Um, but I might just pass on that one altogether. Miranda Maverick, a rightful minus 620 favorite over Shanna Young, plus 400. Another one where I might look at the submission prop for Maverick. I might also look at the knockout prop at plus 900. I think there's good value there. This is another one of those situations. You see those big lines. It's always worth taking the finish prop that has the most value because a lot of the times they're just looking to make a statement if you're this big of a favorite. So I might go Miranda Maverick by KO slash TK with plus 900 as a dart throw as well. Mario Bautista minus 310. Benito Lopez. There's a name from that we haven't heard in a while. Plus 230. And we're going to talk to Benito Lopez a little bit later on in the show. Talk about his return. He's been gone for like three years. I want to know what happened. You, you probably do too and you're going to hear it later on in the show. Lopez is a plus 230 underdog against Mario Bautista, minus 310. This is one of those ones you just stay away from. I don't know what Lopez has learned in the last couple of years, right? Like, are we going to just write off Benito Lopez because we haven't seen him? Who knows? Maybe listen to the interview with him a little bit later on in the show and you can hear where he's been at. Pollyanna Vienna, Jin Yu Fry, 
even money. If you can get a good line on Vienna decision equals no bet, that's probably the way I'd approach it. The Vienna inside props are always interesting. You can get Vienna by KO plus 1,000. I don't know. Another interesting angle is you look at Jin Yu Fry by, you know, inside the distance. That's plus 750 right now. Because Pollyanna Vienna is like a live by the sword, die by the sword type fighter. So Fry might be able to find something in that fight. Johnny Munoz Jr. is a minus 215 favorite over Ludwig Sholinian. I think this is another dogger pass. I think Munoz Jr. is a good fighter. I've really enjoyed watching him. But Sholinian is kind of underrated. I think he's a really solid grappler. It would not surprise me if his goal is to just try to put Johnny Munoz on his back for three rounds and win a decision. And I would say that's a possible outcome. So you're getting pretty decent value on him. Whenever you can get a really good grappler like that as an underdog, not that Johnny Munoz Jr. isn't a good grappler. Like he might be able to completely neutralize him. Who knows? Carlos Candelario, plus 230. Jake Hadley, minus 310. Hadley, a pretty big favorite in this spot. Yeah, I don't have a good angle on that one. That's, that one I'll probably stay away from. Tamiris Vidal, minus 160. Ramona Pasquale, plus 124. I will probably be taking the under 2.5 in this one because you have women's featherweights. Oftentimes, it's, you'll see finishes in these kind of fights. You know, Pasquale's super tough and durable, though, so that's what makes it a little bit tough for me to, to look at that kind of an outcome. Tamiris Vidal is 6-1. and one. If you look at her fights... Four of those seven fights, six uh, six fights, seven fights, have ended inside the distance. So, who knows? We'll have to see. I know that uh, Island Perez is uh, also in the UFC. But if you also look at uh, Ramona Pasquale's resume, before she came to the UFC, she had a lot of finishes. So I'm going to take the under in that fight. That might end up being a TSN Edge recommended play. So there you have it. That is UFC Fight Night. Rodriguez versus Lamosh. We had a lot of cuts, or at least possible cuts from the UFC roster. UFC Roster Watch, which is a, a Twitter account that uh, has uh, basically an algorithm that can pick up when roster pages have been deleted from the UFC, noted that the following roster pages had been removed. Darian Weeks, Cameron Van Camp, Jesse Ronson, Charlie Ontiveros, Magomed Mustafayev, Nick Maximov, Louis Koshi, Rakowski, and uh, Misha Surkinov. That's a lot of cuts to all come down at one time, especially on Halloween. You're just trying to enjoy your Halloween night. And I can understand a lot of these cuts, but it doesn't make it any less brutal to see these fighters lose their roster spot they worked so hard for. Not to mention two Canadians. I think we might be in single digits now for Canadians. We're going to have to go through the roster, but not looking great, that's for sure. You know, at the top of my head, I can name Malcolm Gordon as a flyweight, Chad and Hellinger as a bantamweight. You got Hakeem Dawoodoo as a, uh, and Charles Rodin as featherweights. Mac Desi as a lightweight. That's already just five right there. Maybe it is still double digits, but. 
When I look at the heavyweight classes, I can't think of anybody really. I got Tanner Bozier as a heavyweight. Then over on the women's side, we got Jillian Robertson, who moved to America when she was like four or something, but we'll take it. We'll take what we can get. So it's, yeah, it's kind of slim pickings right now, sadly. We really need to see more Canadians find some prolonged success in the UFC. It's always tough to see, you know, a lot of these Canadian fighters lose their roster spots. And fighters in general, not just Canadians. So that that was a, a tough uh, tough thing to see on Halloween night. Because you always hope to see uh, good news rather than bad news. And with the Contender Series coming in and them signing so many people, people are always kind of fighting for their jobs in the UFC. Makes it a very, very tough job to hang on to. Aljamain Sterling says he wants to wait till mid-year 2023 to fight again and defend his title. And people are giving him a lot of flack for this, but I don't really understand why. Because it's currently like he fought in October. That's like the 10th month of the year. So what, like an eight-month layoff is too much to ask for? Even if you look at the beginning of the year, we're looking at the first three of the first four pay-per-views likely taking place overseas. So you got already on the schedule, Brazil in January, Australia in February. We had Bilal Muhammad last week on the show allude to there being a UK pay-per-view in March. Typically, the March card is in Vegas, so... Maybe there's also, maybe there's two March cards. I don't know. April historically has been Brooklyn, so that would probably be stateside. And I know Aljamain doesn't like fighting in New York State because of the taxes, despite representing New York State. And then we'll see what, what happens from there. But like, if he doesn't want to fight until close to International Fight Week, I don't know if people are giving him a hard time. Like we've already, if the first three pay-per-views are going to be international, it's not really a, a massive market for Aljamain Sterling. And, and like those aren't Aljamain Sterling's markets. The, the, the American fighter. I can understand him not wanting to fight on those. He says the weight cut, cut for him is horrendous. So why don't we want to see these champions at their best? Like if he only wants to fight once a year, it's not hurting anybody but Aljamain Sterling. Like it's hurting his pockets, right? Like if he's fighting twice a year, he makes double the money. So why are people mad that he only wants to fight once a year so that he can fight at his absolute best? Seems like people are hustling backwards on that one. Just saying. Seems weird. Seems weird to me, man. I loved seeing Terrence McKinney announce his own fight on Twitter with a uh, kind of a cool video. I would love to see more of that. He takes on Ismail Bonfim at UFC 283. And Ismail's brother Gabriel is also on the card. So the Bonfim brothers from uh, the Contender Series will both be debuting in Rio. Cool to see. All right, let's get to our interviews. Joining us on the show this week, we've got the one and only Kayla Harrison, who is looking to become a three-time PFL champion, uh, tournament champion, I should say, in the women's lightweight division. That takes place at the PFL's final event of the season, November the 25th at the Hulu Theater in New York. Really looking forward to that particular card um, and seeing Kayla Harrison in action. Once again, she's taking on Larissa Pacheco. I think Pacheco has improved a lot since their last fight, so that should be a really interesting one. Also be joined by Neil Magny, who's in the co-main event of this weekend's UFC Fight Night card. 
and Miranda Maverick, who is finally going to get her opportunity to face Shanna Young for a second time as she looks ahead to this weekend. Still 25 years of age. Really, really strong prospect in the women's strawweight division. And finally, Benito Lopez. Where has Benito Lopez been? He's been away from the game for three and a half years. And I was happy to speak with him to see where he's been. Still 28 years old. uh, Entering his prime. So hopefully we see a lot more of Benito Lopez going forward. Let's start with the interview with two-time, two-time, two-time PFL lightweight tournament champion Kayla Harrison. Well, you can rely on death taxes and Kayla Harrison in the finals of the women's lightweight tournament for the PFL. It's November the 25th at Hulu Theater. What made this season different from the previous ones? Uh, anything ha- you know, change in your mind? No, not really. <laughs> it's been business as usual. I think that, um, if anything, the seasons have obviously gotten harder as the time has gone on. Um, I'm getting older, which means I have more injuries more responsibilities, also probably more pressure. Um, And the girls have gotten better. So um, the seasons have gotten harder, but so have I. And and I'm excited for November 25th. I'm going to go out there and and put on a show. Yeah, I feel like people aren't giving enough credit to Larissa Pacheco and how good she's gotten. I think that she has uh, really improved a lot over the years. Of course, you have as well. But I think that she is... Um, again, last year she missed weight, so that's why she wasn't in the tournament. We, we didn't get to see what she could do. So I think this is a fantastic matchup to cap off the tournament. I think it's the two best uh, women's 55ers in the world. I agree. You know, I think that um, obviously fighting someone for a third time, you know, after you've won pretty much every minute of every round of eight rounds is, you know, many fans are not that probably like, what what's the point? But I agree with you. I think she's one of the top um, fighters in the world. I think she would give Cyborg, I think she would beat Cyborg and I think she would give Amanda a hard time. Um, she's young. She's much younger than all of us. You know, she's hungry. She has a ton of experience. She started, she must've started fighting when she was like 12, you know, like to have the record that she has. So, um, I'm looking forward to the fight and, and I've been preparing for the best version of, of Larissa Pacheco. And, you know, I know she's coming out there to kill me. She's got nothing to lose. So, um, it has made this training camp very intense. I've been very focused, hyper-focused, and um, it's going to be a good fight, I think. How much of a step up do you think she is from your previous opponent this season? I mean, I think that it it very, like, it just depends, you know, more, more so on me than on the other girls, I, I, other women. I think that um, when the best Kayla Harrison shows up and I'm in the zone, then I'm untouchable. Um, she has gotten a lot better. She's gotten a lot stronger. She's gotten a lot more power. Um, but I also think she's your stereotypical bully. You know, she's your stereotypical front runner. She, she likes to come out, put on heavy pressure, swing. Um, and I don't think that in deep rounds, she's going to have that same pop. So I think that, you know, I'm going to be smart. I'm going to pick my shots and, and, and wear her down. You know, she's a thoroughbred and I'm a workhorse. And uh, I plan on going out there and making her work. No, I pitched an idea to you before the season started. I feel like somebody was listening to that interview because suddenly the PFL is loading up on 45ers. There was no 45 division. And I said, why doesn't Kayla Harrison do both? And she can win $2 million instead of $1 million. <laughs> Go in the 45-pound uh, weight class and the 55-pound weight class and run through both tournaments. So I don't know if that's happening, but we suddenly have a 145-pound division in the PFL. 
So this is my last season. <laughs> this is my last season. Okay, anyway. so elaborate on that. What does that mean? Um, it just means that this is this is my last season. You know, I still have two fights left on my contract after this um, with the PFL, and, and um, it's time for me to to be smart and to to really fight the fights that mean something to me and my legacy. Um, money's great. I love money. I love titles, but three is enough. And how much money do I really need? I have everything I want. Everything I have is enough. Um, I've been blessed in that regard. And, um, you know, I think people really underestimate the physical and mental grind of a season. You know, this is my third one. I would before if, uh, COVID hadn't hit and I can't even imagine, <laughs> I can't even imagine having doing four seasons. Like it is, you know, I was talking about this in an earlier interview, but you know, I don't have a life. Like I don't, I can't remember the last time I had energy to go to dinner with my friends or like take my kids to the beach or, you know, I wake up, I, I get my kids ready for school. I take them to school. I come home, I eat, I go train, I come home, I shower as fast as I can. I pick my kids up. We go to their activities or we, we get dinner together. Or we feed our chickens or we do something. I train again. We come home, we do bedtime. I get, I get in bed the same time as my kids and I wake up and I do it all over again every single day. And every 10 weeks, there's a fight. <laughs> like there's, you can't forget if you have injuries, forget if you get sick, forget if you, you know, you better find a way to make it happen and, and, and get over it because you have a fight coming up and every fight counts. So it's time for me to, to be patient and wait for the big fights. And also my kids aren't going to be young forever. You know, I, I became a parent to be a parent, to be a present parent, not to, um, I have to find that work-life balance, you know, and I have to be able to to do the things that I want to do with my kids. I can't just be the disciplinarian and the eat, do your homework, eat your vegetables. Like I want to, I also want to enjoy life with them. You know, I've worked for God. I've been doing two days since I was twelve years, and life is happening right now. And and if I'm not careful, I'll miss it. So. That's a good perspective to have. Did you get to go trick-or-treating with your, your kids the other day? I did. I did. I moved up training to, God, I don't know. I trained at like 11 and 4. So I was like, I might as well just stay at the gym. Um, but, yeah, I moved up training so that we could go trick-or-treating. and It was a blast. I couldn't walk the next day. I was like, ugh. <laughs> But it was it was fun. We all we dressed up as wolves. We were the because our family nickname is the Wolf Pack. So Kyla wanted us to be wolves this year. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. At least you get to do some of those things that uh, you. No, would for sure. And I, when I say that, you know, I am a present parent. Like it's me. I'm the caretaker. It's on me. All of it. But there are other things I would like to do. You know, we don't. I don't. We don't travel. I don't like. I don't have mom's night out very often. You know, if I do, it's for like an hour. <laughs> like it's, there are just things that I think will, will enrich my life and their lives that I really want to spend some time on. Also, you know, like my, there, I have other goals. My foundation, you know, has sat on the back burner for a long time now. Um, I, I, 
I'm ready for this next phase of my life. All right, so let's get into the weeds a little bit here. You said you have two fights left. One is obviously Pacheco. And then there's the pay-per-view division that the PFL has talked about opening up. I have two fights left after this fight. Oh, after this. Okay. And those so would take six, place kind of in the pay-per-view division, from what you understand? Yeah. Pretty sure, yeah. And is there like a deadline where those two fights have to happen by? Yes. I don't know the exact dates, but um, yes, there is a deadline. And who do you expect those opponents to be? Like, if we're talking pay-per-view here, they're going to try to make big fights. You said this is your last mm -hmm. season, so you won't be going through the tournament again. Is there anybody that you have in mind or that the PFL has mentioned that they have in mind to, to be those big opponents for you? And is the weight class flexible? Would you be fighting at 45 potentially as well? Yep, the weight class is flexible. And um, I have an opponent in mind or a couple, but, you know, again... My job is November 25th. I have to get through Larissa Pacheco. You know, she's in my way. She's the best version of her. She's coming to take me out. So that's really what my focus is on and all that other stuff I can think about later. It's the PFL's job to, to go make those fights. They want to sell pay-per-views. I want to I wanna fight the best. It's, you know, mutually beneficial for both of us for them to go out and get some big fighters. Well, I think the problem is there just aren't that many. Right. I mean, like they've cultivated talent and, you know, they've brought in Aspen Ladd, I think is a, a solid name for them. Um, for sure. You know, we, we talked about uh, Julia Budd, a former Bell, you know, Bellator champion. Seems like Cyborg's going to be back with Bellator. All signs are pointing to that. She's wearing Bellator shirts out and about. She's asking for Kat Zingano. She was a free agent, but it seems like uh, her desire is to, to ride out the rest of her MMA career, at least with Bellator. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. I'm not... Uh... I'm not paying too much attention right now, to be honest. I'm not not worried about it. I'm not focused on it. You know, I would love to, again, share the, the cage with her at some point, but that's the time to think about it isn't right now. So That's probably by design, because I know that that was probably among the most stressful parts of your combat sports career was when you were a free agent and you were talking about all of this stuff, and that was the topic of conversation. Uh, now you've got a pretty scary fighter ahead of you. That's probably better yeah. not to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, I have a goal. And my goal is to be three-time PFL champion. I think that that will continue to cement my legacy. It's not even really about Larissa. I've already beaten her twice. Um, so it's not necessarily about beating her, but it's about achieving three t world titles. Um, again, under such rigorous conditions, four fights, six months, you know, win or go home. I think that that's a, to win three titles, that's a stat that will stand alone for quite a while before someone can can achieve that again. So um, my focus is on that. I'm hungry. Um, I'm ready. I'm laser focused. And, you know, all that other shit will, will happen when it happens. I'm trying to think if anybody's even done two. Has, have there been any two-time PFL champions? Oh, Lance Palmer did it, if I, if I recall. Natan won twice. Um, uh, who else won I think twice? Lance now Palmer. my Did, mind's gone. You mentioned Lance Palmer? Lance Palmer. Lance Palmer won twice. Yeah. So you'd be the only three-time champion. And uh, I mean, uh, Natan or, or Lance could win again, but I know Lance has had a bit of a rough stretch this season. Yeah, so there have been a couple of two-time champions. Uh, well, hopefully you will be the first three-time champion. It's uh, November the 25th at the Hulu Theater. Yourself, Larissa Pacheco. It's the finals of the Women's Lightweight Championship. 
Uh, thank you for doing this and look forward to seeing whatever's next for you. And uh, maybe we can talk about that once uh, this fight's in the rearview mirror. Absolutely. You know, I'm happy to talk to you anytime. Thanks for um, giving me a platform and everybody tunes in. It's going to be another step on the path to greatness. Happy to be joined by Neil Magny, who I thought was staying uh, on the strip at New York, New York because of the Las Vegas sign in the background. But this is just like an Airbnb you're staying at that they've decorated. <laughs> yeah, I have a Las Vegas theme uh, Airbnb out here now. How are you enjoying it? I'm, I'm guessing it's probably nicer than staying at uh, New York, New York. No, no disrespect to that great establishment. Oh, no, it's great. I mean, uh, New York, New York is real cool when you're there supporting somebody else. But when it's uh, your own actual fight week and you're trying to get access to like uh, um, a kitchen and a grill and all that kind of stuff to help prepare your meals for cutting weight and all that kind of stuff, um, it's definitely better to kind of have like, your own little space that you can do that in. Um, I mean, I've done it before in the past where uh, I was forced to like keep my food in the cooler and just kind of uh, warm it up in a room using a tea kettle and that kind of thing. But uh, I definitely appreciate having an actual uh, kitchen where I can prepare, prepare meals and uh, that kind of thing ahead of fight week. Yeah, that's always the challenge in, in Vegas, especially when you go and you, you have to pay eight bucks for a coffee. I, you know, you, there's got to be ways <laughs> around this uh, this racket that they've got going on there. Yeah, I mean, it's getting back to comfortable. I mean, one of the, the cool things about uh, uh, the world being open, quote unquote, and getting back to real life is like you're back to uh, being in the in the strip hotels. You're back to being uh, around fans and all that kind of stuff. And I'm definitely fortunate for that opportunity. But uh, at the end of the day, I do have a job to do. And um, kind of being away from the strip and being where I can like, have access to things that I need uh, helps me stay a little bit more focused and uh, get things done a little bit smoother. I look at your record, and it seems like whenever you're coming off a loss, you try to turn it around faster. It seems like you have a little bit less time between fights. Is that by design? <laughs> oh, 100%. Um, <laughs> I can remember uh, after I fought uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I can't remember who it was exactly. I remember after a fight, it was a loss, and I immediately jumped in the phone with the UFC like, hey, I can do better than that. I know I can. Uh, get me there as soon as possible. I don't care who it is. I don't care when it is. I just need to go back out there and uh, prove to myself that I'm a lot better than I showed in that last fight. Uh, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I mean, um, even one time, I remember being down in Brazil when I fought Demi Maia. Um, I ended up losing that fight. I came back home on, uh, I think it was a, a Tuesday. And on, by Wednesday, I was back into practice. And immediately after practice, I get a call from, uh, back then it was Joe Silva. Uh, I get a call from Joe Silva. And he's like, hey, man, what are you up to? I'm like, oh, nothing much. Just uh, about to leave the gym. He's like, cool. That's what I like to hear. Uh, that's what a young man should be. Um, and like, uh, so what's up? What are you coming for? And he's like, um, when do you want to fight again? And I'm like, as soon as possible, as soon as you can get me a fight. He's like, yeah, even better. That's what I like to hear. Um, how about next week? And I'm like, oh, you mean like in seven, eight days next week? Like, yeah, let's do it. Um, I was glad he took that fight. So I ended up finding Eric Silva, uh, shortly after getting back from Brazil, um, after that day, my loss. And it was the same thing, just like minimal uh, downtime, like um, I took no injuries. I was able to assess the fight, see what I could do better, what I could do different. Um, so for me, it was like um, it made no sense, so no point in me like waiting around and uh, sitting my sorrow, so to speak. I know I can do better, so um, pick myself up and go out there and do better. And that fight was in Saskatoon. I mean, yeah, that, that's quite the trek <laughs> from Brazil to uh, if you were still in Denver, Denver all the way to Saskatoon. That's like that's a trek. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll go wherever the work is, just trying to get it done. Um, and like I said, it was just that burn desire to get back in there and show that I can do a lot better than I performed. And um, it, it just kind of helps with the 
uh, recovery too on the mental end. I mean, um, after a fight, you're sitting there over assessing it like every single detail. Like, oh, I should have done this. I could have done that. Like, what about this? What about that? But once you get uh, the next opponent, the next whatever, um, you're no longer thinking about what could, what should have happened. You're like, all right, cool. I accept it. Uh, I took that lesson from that fight. Let's move on to the next one. And I feel like mentally it puts you in a better place where um, you're not spending weeks in a dump trying to think of like all these different things that you could have done different. Well, I mean, with it being such a whirlwind, do you have any memories of Saskatoon? Is there anything that you remember? From, it's the only fight you've had in Canada. Is there anything you remember about <laughs> Um, what is this thing called? I, I'm, I'm probably gonna mess it up. Or like, st- like the the poutine sauce. Poutine, you got a you poutine, got poutine gravy. Uh, <laughs> I remember that was being like the the big thing that everyone worked up or whatever to go out, get out there and try. Um, they're like, oh, I can't wait. Once weight cut is over, I'm gonna I'm gonna get me some. Uh, and I got it. And immediately just jacked my stomach up. So, like, I was like, oh, my God. How did, like, why did I eat that? Like, I, I should have known better. There's way too much dairy in this thing for me to uh, eat up that weight cut. But um, other than that, it was pretty cool. I mean, I uh, I definitely enjoyed the, the crowd and things like that uh, out there. But uh, the poutine was definitely a big memory for me. Yeah, poutine is one of those things where, like, when you're eating it, it's, like, the greatest thing ever. But the remorse kicks in really quickly. Like, it's even if uh, you're not coming up a weight cut, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make it back to the hotel. My stomach was just rumbling. It was like, oh, what did I do? Why? <laughs> you probably should have waited till after the fight to give that a shot instead of before the fight. Well, either way, I think it would have been all bad. I mean, uh, after the fight, would have been going to the airport would have messed up stomach. Before the fight, at least I can like get a couple moments where it like settled down and uh, do its thing or whatever. But I think either way, I was screwed. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, you are one and all on Canadian soil, so when the UFC starts coming back to Canada, we'd love to have you back. <laughs> that would be cool. Your last fight against Shavkat Rachmanov, you know, this is a, a guy that not a lot of people want to face. And I mean, a lot of, one of the big problems with, I think, the UFC's ranking system is when people have a number beside their name, they're often hesitant to put that number on the line. You've never been one of those guys. You've always been somebody who will step up to the plate against any challenger. But do you, is there something about the ranking system that you think could be fixed? to uh, stop something like that from happening? Because unless there's a Neil Magny in every division, we're going to see a lot of these fighters that are up and coming not get matched up with certain opponents. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is uh, putting some kind of time clause up there where you have to uh, either fight or um, as other fighters are staying active, as other fighters are moving up, as other fighters are putting on a line, um, then things start to switch up and your time starts to get passed up. I mean, um, you could have got like Wonderboy, for example, um, to sit out for almost a year or over a year, um, saying that he does want to fight another grappler and uh, wants to handpick a matchup against um, a, a guy who he believes is not a, uh, a grappling threat. I mean, in my opinion, it's just ridiculous. I mean, you're in mixed martial arts, you're in the UFC, where guys have a, a variety of skills as grappling being one of them. Um, and I don't see how you can call yourself the number six guy, number seven guy, number five guy, um, and you're not willing to go out there and fight the best guys in the world because of a particular skill set. Like, this isn't kickboxing, this isn't karate, this is mixed martial arts. Go out there and um, uh, perform to the best of your ability. Um, and I, I get it. If you personally want to hold out for your best matchup, that's fine. But like for other people, um, that number is pretty significant when it comes to uh, being able to negotiate a contract and that kind of thing in order for you to like uh, elevate yourself, and provide for your family. So um, sitting out for your ideal matchups and your uh, perfect moments, I mean, it's, it's just 
holds up the whole division and holds up everybody else, especially uh, in a sport like mixed martial arts where uh, time isn't your friend. Uh, that's one thing that's guaranteed to all of us. Does it come a uh, time and day where uh, we can no longer do this at the best of our ability at the highest level? Um, so to have people kind of clog the division and hold it up in order to uh, handpick matchups, I just don't think that's fair for everybody else in the division. Who's your ideal matchup in the uh, in the rankings? Forget where they're ranked, but if you could just pick one guy and say that's the easiest guy that I can beat right now that's ranked at a welterweight. I don't know if you know all the guys that are ranked or you've thought about this before, but is there somebody that stands out? Um, as far as easiest, no. Um, as far as like uh, uh, competition, who I want to fight again or fight in general, shop guy. Like I like I know uh, you mentioned earlier, that's the guy who who uh, a lot of people are raising their hands to fight. But uh, after that last fight, like I, I'm, I, I mean in even though over 40 fights that I've had at this point, close to 50, I mean, I've never had a rematch. Uh, and currently that's the one that's sitting in the front of my mind. Like, all right, cool. Um, that's a rematch I would definitely love to get down the road to uh, go out there and prove to myself. Like, okay, cool. Um, it, it was this particular aspect that cost you that fight. Uh, let's see how you adjust and overcome that. And uh, right now that's like, like I said, it's not an easy fight by any means, but um, that's definitely the fight that I'm like uh, uh, chomping the list for. It's like getting an opportunity to go out there and compete against again. I also realized I've made an error. You fought in Edmonton at UFC 215, so you fought twice in Canada. So you're, you're unfortunately not undefeated in Canada. Do you have any memories of Edmonton and fighting there? Well, you can't let that one up. It wasn't a win. There was no point of uh, bringing him back up. <laughs> um, honestly, uh, I don't. I mean, that was a, that was a state where I was, I was fighting, like, literally, I think I fought, like, 11 times in 18 months or 10 times in 18 months, something like that. It was literally, like, uh, one place to the next to the next to the next. And, um... Uh, it was just, I was just rolling through it. I mean, I unfortunately didn't like take much time in between those fights to really enjoy like the, uh, um, the atmosphere of the city and that kind of thing that came with it. Um, but, uh, overall it was just, like I said, it was just a great experience. Like win or lose, I, uh, always make the best of the, of the fight trip as far as like, um, the people I meet and that kind of thing on those fight trips. So, uh, it, it was a great experience nonetheless. And finally, I mean, you're six foot three. How are you able to make 170 pounds so systematically for so long? And like you mentioned, like 10, 11 fights in 18 months. How are you able to do that uh, with such regularity without any single hiccups? <laughs> well, that's the downside of being six foot three and final 170. Like, though I can be the quote unquote bigger guy being the tall guy in the division. That means I'm also the skinny guy. It's funny, like, uh, like I'll, I'll envision myself looking a certain way, being a, a bigger fighter at 170. And I'll see other guys that, like, similar built, like uh, Randy Brown or, like, uh, a Tim Means or something like that. I'll see them fight at their actual fight with my cop. This is how skinny I look on TV too, huh? So in my mind, I'm thinking I'm like this huge 170 pounder. And reality of it, I'm just like, oh, I'm just a skinny dude going out there competing against these young guys, or not young guys, like these uh, shorter guys who are like just jacked for the division. So like, even though I'm a taller uh, welterweight, I don't carry much uh, muscle mass where it makes it difficult to make weight. Like I, I, I barely get above uh, 188 pounds or so. Um, so even though I'm one of the target guys in division, I'm not one of the biggest guys in division. There are other guys who are walking around uh, 5'10", 5'11", who uh, can very well get up to 200 pounds or, or more uh, in division. So, um, yeah, it, it definitely has been a breeze for me to make weight at 170. It's been a weight class that I competed at for literally the last 20 years of my life. I mean, I wrestled uh, 171 through high school, 174, 165 through college. I uh, competed at 170 ever since. So uh, for me, it's almost like a, a perfect recipe for making weight where it's like add a little bit of this, take some of that out, and boom, we got 170. 
And before I let you go, I want to laud you on uh, some of your humanitarian work you've been doing, I believe in Haiti and the Philippines. If you could tell me a little bit about that and how other people can perhaps get involved or donate, that would be great. Um, yeah, so the best thing is uh, it's uh, it's called mission111.org. Um, and this organization, like you said, it does work in Haiti and the Philippines. Um, and this is really cool because like uh, um, a lot of times they, there's a bunch of different missionary groups that will go out to these different countries. Um, and they kind of set up shop for uh, a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month at times. Um, but uh, Mission 111 does a great job of setting up long-term uh, facilities and putting long-term plans together uh, to help the people that they are, are working with. So like uh, in Haiti, for example, they, they started an orphanage. They have a, a group home that they run. Um, they have a, a school that they run that allows the kids to not only get an education, but also get uh, at least one hot meal per day um, while getting educated. They have um, uh, uh, community leaders that they work with that are able to provide uh, unconventional needs for people in the community. So you have like a, a young mother, for example, who's not able to get um, groceries or basic needs. Um, Mission 11 would jump in to like kind of help uh, meet those needs for, for the people in those communities. So um, it's just been a great organization that I've been fortunate to be able to uh, partner with and get some of the people who run that organization over the last couple of years. Um, and I'm just a, a fan of the great work that they do. Um, so anyone who wants to get more information about the work that they do, how they can help, whether it's uh, um, through donations or volunteering, uh, is mission111.org. They have a Facebook page, an Instagram page, uh, and a website as, as well. Well, it's always great to see athletes use their platforms uh, as a means for good. And I uh, wanted to, of course, thank you for, for shining such a nice light on both that organization and on the sport itself. Uh, appreciate your time and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Best of luck this weekend. All right. No problem. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. At 25 years of age, Miranda Maverick is one of the top prospects in the women's strawweight division and she's got Shanna Young this Saturday. Not the first time this was booked. Last time around, uh, she unfortunately had a weight cutting complication, but this was rebooked. Are you happy that you're booked against her once again? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, you know, I her before in 2019 and to be able to fight her again it's kind of the same fight for me she's the one that has to change what she's doing but I've improved a lot I've added a lot of tools to my game and I plan on showing them on Saturday when did you fight her in uh, 2019 I'm on your topology page and I, I don't see it uh it is the exhibition bout I fought her on the second round of my Invicta paid uh my Invicta tournament fight so oh, I fought three sure. times in one night and she was my second fight that was the Phoenix tournament? Yep. It should be there uh, about five, six fights back. Cool. Well, that's uh, great to see that you're facing her once again. What improvements do you think she's made since your last uh, time facing her? Uh, not much. You know, I've seen her. She looks like she has a little better movement, uh, maybe better speed. But overall, I think I've been the one that's improved the most. She was out a couple of years to have a kid. She came back. She fought a couple of times at 135 um, and, and did a not so great in the UFC, lost Zanny at 125, and now she's facing me as a flyweight. Um, and this will be your second time trying to make 125 while in the UFC, I guess third if you count the last one that was so a great tough fight. Now, obviously, this is outside of your control, but do you have any sort of fears regarding her making the weight this time around? I do. You know, I actually uh, am checking in with her uh, today, hopefully, and going to see like where she's at, how she's doing. Um, I don't necessarily want her to miss weight, but I definitely don't want her being unhealthy or having to go to the hospital again. Um, so that's kind of the most important part, even if we have to make changes on our side. 
I don't really want to do a catch weight, but if she's willing to miss weight instead of going to the hospital um, due to complications, that would obviously be preferred. Now, in your mind, I'm sure this lingers from the last time around because you, you show up to fight week, you do everything you need to do. That, that must be very deflating for any fighter, and, and it happens from time to time. It's writing that on top of having to be booked like three months later versus just a few weeks. You know, I was thinking like, you know, five, six weeks out, but it was posted like 14 weeks out, which was uh, not what I expected. And I wanted another fight by the end of the year. And now I doubt that's going to happen um, unless there's a really quick short notice turnaround. Um, but I'll stay ready for that as well. And I've had this happen two out of like five fights in the UFC. The first one with Jillian Robertson. She got sick the day of the fight, couldn't fight then. So it is. It's disheartening. And I spoke to your coach, Elliot Marshall. He was backstage with me after he coached Drew Dober. And he was like, Miranda's looking so sharp. Uh, we're really excited to see what she can do. And of course, that, that's what ended up happening. So do you feel like yeah. you still have the same momentum that you had uh, going into that last fight now? Oh, absolutely. I feel better than I did then, actually. I feel like I improve so much in between camps, get that much more time to work with my coaches, you know, doing private lessons with them, doing my normal classes, getting the spar in front of them and have them coach in my corner as I'm sparring, having the high level people I do to train with. I just feel like it's easy to improve every single day. One of those high level people is Lauren Murphy, who's uh, atop the flyweight division, one of the best in the world. Um, what was it like training with her? And what, what did you learn from her when you had some time to uh, get in there against her uh, from a sparring sense or, or a training sense? It's good for everybody. You know, there's things that I'm better at. There's things that she's better at, along with all the other training partners. Uh, there's Raquel Pennington. She's got that size advantage and can kind of bully me around a little bit, which I need uh, to get better. So all of us have really been good training partners for each other. Getting ready for her camp against Misha Tate was great. I was able to be, I would say, her main training partner leading up to that fight. Um, and throw some of that wrestling in there, give her the pressure that she needed to see. And she went out there and put on a phenomenal performance. Um, and during that fight with her, I actually fought Orthodox the entire camp, which I'm um, typically a Southpaw, had always been traditionally a Southpaw. So I improved that side of my game, being able to switch stances and be comfortable in both defensively, offensively. So I'm excited to not only show that if I need to, um, but also just everywhere felt better, well-rounded after getting done with that camp with her. And now she's came back up twice to help me. And now she's getting ready for her own fight. And we're all excited to just be putting in the work together. And those striking elements, I'm sure, were taught to you by uh, Justin Houghton. I mean, this guy is an absolute wizard on the feet. I'm a kickboxing uh, fan. And, and getting to see what he was able to do in his kickboxing career, the way that he switched it up, the, the creativity, I'm sure that anybody who learns under his tutelage probably picks up a lot of that. Oh, yeah, I try my best. You know, it's always like such a thinking game when you go in there, especially during private lessons with him. And when I first came to the gym, I had a good Muay Thai background. I had good traditional Muay Thai and basics. But man, like the tricks and triggers he's been able to teach me since the different combinations um, that just like allow me to flow into different combos, flow into takedowns, all that stuff has been phenomenal. And, you know, I got to show like just a teeny bit of the uh, glacier of it when I fought Sabino Mazo and now here I get to show more and I'm really excited to be able to go in there against an opponent that I think will be willing to keep it standing to where I can do that. And is that the plan is to show off those new wrinkles to your game? Because uh, like you mentioned, you tried that in the last fight. It was successful for you. So this time around, are you looking to continue that? This time around, my goal is to get a bonus and walk out of that cage. So regardless of what way that happens, I hope to be able to show off the striking and get it done that way. But if not, I know I, my bread and butter against Shanna is always going to be the ground game if I need to take it there. Yeah, you've yet to get a bonus in the UFC so far. So I'm sure you have a bit of a chip on your shoulder about that. 
Well, it just, it's funny because every time I put on a phenomenal performance, the entire card does some crazy stuff, right? Like my first fight in Abu Dhabi, when I got the uh, TKO via the elbow, like there were three crazy knockouts that day. Um, and then another one, like when I fought Jillian and it could have been like fight of the night or performance of the night, there ended up being a lot that went the, di- went the distance and were really rough fights. Um, and then the Sabina Maza one, same thing. A lot of people finished fights. It just always seems to work out that way for me. So I'm hoping this time it's a card where I can really uh, stand out. A first round finish. That's probably something that would stand out as well. I mean, you mentioned the Joe Jua fight. That was, a, I guess, a doctor stoppage. But that elbow was pretty, I remember, that was a pretty nasty cut that you left her with. Yeah, yeah. All right, Miranda. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, chat with you. It's uh, yourself, Shanna Young, this weekend, the rematch. Uh, look forward to your success in the cage. Age 25, you continue to move up the ranks. And uh, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. After three plus years away from the cage, Benito Lopez returns. And I'm curious, sir, what what kept you away from so long? It's nice to have you back. Hey, it's good to be back, man. You know, just uh, I had a few injuries that kept lingering um, when I would try to make comebacks. And I just had to do the right physical therapy and recover properly and put in the proper work. And now I'm here. I've, I've put it in and I've been feeling healthy and ready to go. When we see you on Saturday, how much better are you going to be than the last time we saw you? Because, you know, three and a half years is a long time and it's a lot to absorb. Yeah, I think you'll see a lot of improvements, especially based off my last fight where all I did was kick, <laughs> you know. So I think you'll see a lot of involvement, improvements and um, just uh, my mindset as well, just composure and everything. And yeah, I think it's going to be good. And a lot's changed in your life. Like I mentioned, three years older, but also your father now. And also a real estate agent. So you've got a lot going on in your life uh, nowadays. Um, so in terms of coming back to the UFC, what does it mean to you to be able to return at this stage of your life? Yeah, man, I've got a lot going on. Being a father, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's, it's definitely a blessing and it's, it's the greatest thing ever. And um, getting my real estate license, that's, it's been awesome too. You know, I've been working towards building up my clients and, and leads and but once I signed for this fight, uh, my team supported me, fully supported me. They sponsored me on just training full time and focusing on this fight and getting this this job done. They know it's my dream. So I've got a lot going on. But since I've been 12 years old, my goal was always to be a champion of the world, you know, and fight in the UFC. And, and here I am. So this has always been the main goal. I just had a few little speed bumps, but I'm back, you know, and I'm, I'm excited. All the other stuff's great, but I'm excited to be back as far as work, you know. Well, of course, I mean, a lot of UFC fighters need to have a second job because, it's, you know, you fight once, twice a year. Uh, in your case, with some time off, you've you got to make a secondary income. So what made you decide to get into real estate? What was that about real estate? Now, what made you decide to get into real estate and uh, become a real estate agent? Um, to be honest, I've always kind of thought about it like the way it's structured is kind of like you work with your client or a lead for a certain amount of time and then if you get the job done with your lead you can possibly you know generate a decent amount of income which is kind of like fighting you work for a few months or you work for a certain amount of time and then you get paid on fight night and then depending on if you win or lose you get paid more you know so it's very similar as far as that and then on top of that just seeing LA Quinta have some success in the real estate market on top of fighting and um, a lot of these real estate shows, I'm not going to lie, like um, Selling Sunset, stuff like that, they definitely kind of drew me in and uh, opened my eyes a little bit. Like, I'm sure a lot of new real estate agents have, you know, but that's just me being honest. So, yeah. 
what's it like to have uh, to be back for fight week? How's the experience been so far? I, I know it's only Wednesday at this point in time, but are you happy to, to, to get your feet wet again and be able to experience fight week? Yeah, man, it's a blessing. Um, I don't think a lot of fighters really realize it. I mean, your first fight, you're still like super excited about everything. I mean, I still am obviously, but like, you kind of take it for granted when you're away, you know, for a few years of just that fight week, like these weeks for each of us fighters or a moment in our life will never get back. And their memories like that will cherish forever. I'm sure, you know, just being with the staff, um, just being a UFC fighter and being treated as one, you know, and being a part of the whole event and fight week. It's, it's a blessing, man. And it's, it's great. And I, I genuinely, like, I really do embrace it more, you know, like I'm living in the moment more and I'm grateful for everything. So it feels great to be back. And you're still only 28 years old. You're basically just entering your prime. So should we expect to see you a lot more often? I mean, obviously more often than every three and a half years, but uh, are you looking to fight again uh, early next year sort of thing? Yeah, definitely. That's exactly my time frame. I want to fight early next year. Everything goes good. Um, I plan on being active. You know, I want to come back and start claiming the rankings of Bantamweight and show the UFC I'm here. And, you know, it was just a speed bump. But, you know, Khabib was out for three years. Khabib's the man. You know, he's considered the GOAT by a lot of people. And at one point, he was out for three years. So I'm trying to use some motivation from him and guys like him, Dominic Cruz, where they were out and they came back and had a successful run, you know. So that's my plan. And that's what I plan on doing, you know. I'm looking at your resume, you know, when you when you were like 20 years old, you went on this crazy win streak where you're beating everybody in the first round, getting tons of finishes. Is that the Benito Lopez we're going <laughs> to see on Saturday? Yeah, that's the plan, man. That's definitely the plan. I'm more mature and methodical. I was kind of like a bull or, you know, just just going crazy, you know, still young, but um, more composed, more methodical. But yeah, definitely aggressive and, and looking to knock him out, go for the finish. And now that you're a father, make you're a statement. My- now that you're a father, has your mindset changed towards fighting? Do you feel uh, any sort of difference heading into your fight this this Saturday? To be honest, I don't think so. Not really, you know. Um, yeah, not really. Just, I guess, that my daughter is watching, and I know that, you know. So I want to make her proud and um, not get hit as much, probably, because she's watching, you know. So, um, But other than that, no, not really. I'm just ready to, to fight and, yeah, provide for her, but... Not too much. I'm, I'm ready to go to war. And ever since I was young, you know, when I step in there, I'm ready for for war, you know. So is she coming to the fight? Is that when she's, you say she's going to be watching it, is it going to be on TV or she's going to be uh, at the Apex? <laughs> It'll be on TV. Um, unfortunately, I, we didn't get tickets. I wanted to get tickets and bring them out here, but um, we didn't get any for the family or friends. So, um, yeah, I'm, they're not going to be here. I wanted to win and bring her in the cage, you know, but. Uh, it won't happen this event, but maybe at one of the future ones, you know. So it's all business this week. I'm just coming here to go on a business trip. Well, two of the three fights that you had were like in your backyard. You had one in Fresno and then one in Sacramento. So that was probably a little bit easier um, in terms of, you know, having family come out to the show. Oh, definitely. 100%. And yeah, to be honest, like any California card, I'm probably in the UFC that you're trying to get on that because... I love fighting California, and I, I bring a crowd and a big family, you know, so. Now, what's happened in the, in the bantamweight division since you've been gone? So, is there anything that caught your eye about the bantamweight division and the, those that are at the top right now? And maybe uh, some reflections on the last title fight between Aljamain Sterling and TJ Dillashaw? 
Yeah, man, a lot has happened. I feel like our division was always pretty stacked, but since I've been out the past three years, I feel like it's just became one of the most stacked divisions up there with lightweight, you know? And um, there's just a lot of talent. I've been keeping tabs on every single one of them, including Mario before the fight, you know? So I don't miss a fight from the prelims to the main card, and especially Bantamweights, I'm taking notes, you know? And um, to reflect on the, the main event fight, I mean... <laughs> I mean, there's not too much to say about it, you know? I mean, LJ looked dominant. TJ's shoulder was hurt, but I don't take nothing away from LJ, you know? Um, LJ's the champ, and he made it look easy. I was surprised that TJ would, would enter a fight like that compromised. But I mean, what, he's like 37, going to be 38 soon. Maybe he thought it was his last chance to get the title back, because if you pull out of that fight, who knows what the UFC does from there? I think my opinion is, I think, two things. So I think it's either... One, that he underestimated Elja, and he figured he could keep his distance and range with his footwork and keep it on the feet, you know? And maybe his shoulder wouldn't dislocate, and he would do his best. My other one is, like, he probably knew it might come out, but, you know, maybe his businesses aren't doing as well, and he needed some extra um, money to invest in his business, uh, reinvest in his businesses or something. I don't know. So sometimes, you know, fighters got to fight because, I mean, it's our job at the end of the day. We can do all these other jobs, but... Our real, our real job when you're signing the UFC is to fight. That's when we make our money, you know. Well, hopefully you'll be making your money on Saturday, plus a win bonus, plus a performance bonus. We look forward to seeing you back in the octagon, uh, Benito. <laughs> great to catch up with you and uh, look forward to more of your success in the cage. Thank you, boss. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. A big thank you to all of our guests, Kayla Harrison, Neil Magny, Miranda Maverick, and Benito Lopez. You can check out all of my work at www.aaron.report if you'd like to check out any of my links. And as always, I ask for one final favor. If you've gotten through the two hours of this show, please do go to wherever you get your find your podcasts and leave us a nice review, whether it's four stars, five stars, eight stars, nine stars. I don't know what their ranking system is, but whatever it is, the most amount of stars you can give would be highly appropriate, I think. And uh, maybe a nice little write-up too. And if you're listening to the show on TSN Radio in Toronto or Ottawa, the podcast is available uh, wherever podcasts are found if you want a longer version of this show. So thank you for tuning in. And uh, we will be back next week from New York City. UFC 281 is ahead of us. Uh, we'll be on location in the Big Apple to preview the event, break down the event uh, as it happens, and uh, do post for Sports Center. So looking forward to that, uh, as always. And I think that's going to be a great event, headlined by the grudge match this time in mixed martial arts between Israel Adesonia and Michelle, sorry, Alex Pereira. Michelle Pereira was apparently supposed to fight on this card against Neil Magny, but that didn't happen. But Alex Pereira trying to become the new UFC middleweight champion. Also, Carlos Barza against Zhang Veili for the women's strawweight title. And an awesome matchup between Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler. That's all ahead next week. Thank you for tuning in. And until then, be well, be kind, and be enthusiastic. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash